Hello, welcome to Rising with the Tide. Today we've got David Gilbert, a researcher at UC Berkeley in political ecology, society and environment. Thank you, David, for joining us. How are you doing today? Thank you, David. Oh, what's good? Great to be with you guys. Thanks for joining. Um, so just before we were starting to record, we, we were just beginning a, a really good conversation. So we had to kind of stop it and hit record. But um, I want to definitely get back into that. Uh, we were talking a bit about current events, about protests, about France, UK, US, and how it seems like uh, maybe this year specifically, 2023, has been kind of defined so far as a very protest-heavy year, maybe. Um, I was wondering what your kind of perspectives were on, on, on that, on like the recent protests that I've seen happen around UC Berkeley, I think, uh, more recently. Mm -hmm. And there's also been obviously the ones currently in France because of the Macron's uh, retirement age uh, policy. And yeah, I was just wondering, what, what are your thoughts on that? What, how are you looking at it uh, these days? Yeah, I agree. I think it's it's nice to be in one of those years where you like feel like there's a lot of movement and action happening out there. And and personally, as a social movement scholar, you know, we're always a little buoyed to like see that and excited, and you know, gives us a lot to think about. I mean, here in the UC system, we just had one of the largest academic strikes ever. Um, is now kind of finishing up. Um, it was really motivated by this this kind of desire by mostly, I would say, grad students, also people like myself, researchers, postdoctoral researchers, wanting to feel a little less precarious. I mean, you know, there's something like, you know, one one. One in 10, I think, across the whole UC system, uh, one in 10 students are lack sufficient access to food on a daily basis. I mean, it's getting mm. pretty severe if you're tr trying to just survive as a student these days in the U UC system. Housing is also a huge issue. A lot of people are housing insecure. So, yeah, it's nice to see like what feels like a real moment of labor increasing its power in the U.S. and these academic strikes, it wasn't just in the UC system. We've seen them all over NYU. Um, you know, there's too many to really call out right now, but they're really like following on the success of the fight for 15, which is the fight for $15 minimum yeah. wage across the country that was led basically by fast food workers. And, you know, mm -hmm. the organizing that's been happening across Amazon, Starbucks. Now the latest is like Trader Joe's. You had another big like grocery oh, really? outlet chain chain so yeah we're seeing like labor really starting to c consolidate in a way that you know people say maybe it hasn't done here since the 80s uh, maybe the 90s mm -hmm. and of course like you know it's union organizing but it's like it's, it's new new unions it's different forms of unions it's it's um you know something a little bit more flexible the uc strike was led by one of the big old school unions that's been around for a very long time and has been very much criticized for how hierarchical it is um, how unresponsive to its membership it is. And I think we saw a bit of that play out in the UC system. There were a lot of frustrations for with the final contract and, and how the union leadership was was really trying to keep the rank and file in a box. And, you know, in a, in a great, like, turn at the end of that strike, um, UAW finally announced that they were going to kind of democratize the way they work. And for the first time, there was going to be direct elections by the rank and file mm -hmm. of its leadership. So... You know, that that is like a, a really important reform as one of the largest consolidated labor unions in the U.S. You know, UAW stands for United Auto Workers. Um, and, 
they've now brought in many different industries un under their umbrella. But, you know, ho hopefully that will lead to like a little bit more energy within the formal union sector, because a lot of what's been happening um, with labor in the U.S. recently has been um, outside of like, you know, the old school unions, formalized unions. And mm -hmm. for me personally right now, you know, I, I'm, I'm just an observer of what's going down in Europe. Of course, France seems like really just, wow, it's going off and, it seems like it's really about resisting austerity, you know, and, mm, yeah, and, yeah. and, and like, I mean, it's hard, it's hard to tell exactly what's going to come into, but for, for me personally, you know, this week has been a time where we're reflecting on the 20th anniversary of the invasion of Iraq, the U S invasion of Iraq. Mm -hmm. And, uh, um, that was how I really came to activism. Um, I was in high school at the time, um, and we had some of the largest protests across the world, right, uh, against the U.S. invasion of Iraq. And yeah. um, certainly here in California, in the Bay Area, where I grew up, uh, you know, we were in the streets. And I think <laughs> in a way, of course, you know, my crew, we were really young. Um, so we were very naive, kind of, I think, you know, we actually I was going to say, I was five, so I don't, I can't remember. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, we were pretty naive thinking... Um, like we thought we were going to stop the, I, I thought I was going to stop the invasion of Iraq um, because of the numbers in the streets. Um, but of course that didn't happen. I mean, you know, the leaders of our country had already decided that they were going to invade that country. And I think once you get to that point, um, it's something very hard to stop. Um, yeah. So, you know, there were a lot of lessons that came out of that mass mobilization in, in California, in the Bay Area, um, a lot of crews were formed, affinity groups, as we call them. Um, and a lot of them are still active today. And, and you know, it, it was uh, certainly, I think, um, a real formative moment in, in finally having kind of a widespread mainstream recognition that you know, imperialism wasn't dead in the U.S., that that our imperial efforts didn't end with Vietnam. Uh, you know, mm -hmm. this was a moment where the lies of the Bush administration were laid bare. You know, no weapons of mass destruction were ever found. Even when it was happening, um, even with, you know, the complete 100 percent of Congress, 100 percent mm -hmm. of the mainstream media, people felt like it was the wrong thing to do. You know, they really did, um, which maybe is the case with all wars, but um, yeah, I think since then, um, yeah, the, the U S has never really been able to enter into a war without like just making its imperialist mm -hmm. ambitious. It's pretty naked, um, at least among the U S populace. And, and I really like contribute a lot of that to the mass mobilizations that happened. I mean, we had hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people in the street mm -hmm. trying to stop that war in the U.S. London, I think, might have been the single largest. Yeah, I was going to say London, videos from the London protests are absolutely incredible. I mean, if, if, if you're listening and you haven't seen what that looked like, what the energy, you can feel it through the screen. Like, it's absolutely incredible. Um, but I want to say, though, like 20 years ago, you know, we can't forget also that while a lot of people did stand up against things like the Iraq invasion, um, a lot of media, for example, like New York Times and such, were still like, you know, writing headline after headline after op-ed after op-ed uh, calling for the war, basically like, you know, 
uh what is it called banging on the on the war drums like saying we this is mm -hmm. not like those other times guys we we need to go civilize we need to go fucking like kill this dictator so that we can save these people and and, and still some of the coverage i've seen today on the anniversary stuff um it still says like you know oh we went in because of weapons of mass destruction and no weapons were found it's like it doesn't still some i feel still completely trying to be neutral and things still completely lack that uh approach of of still laying bare the lies of of you know uk and us government mainly i guess yeah that's right and i feel that um really it's not just this year you know the whole of the start of the 21st century here you know the last 20 years have really been defined as an era of people's protest movements um with like you know one nation's protests sparking protest action in the next yeah. and not just mm -hmm. europe in the us right like we've seen yeah, incredible pro protest movements in south america across um southeast asia where i work um across um you know hong kong what was has been happening there the last few years so you know i think uh, iraq was early you know and, and then of course there was the battle of seattle in 1999 mm -hmm. which was um a, a anti-globalization movement against you know the the wto world trade organization and that for me um you know i'll never forget i think that was um my first year of college um and I didn't go, but a friend of mine went, um, you know, I just didn't feel like I had the means to travel all the way to Seattle. And, you know, looking back, I wish I had gone, but a friend of mine mm -hmm. went and he came back. He was, he was creating film images with this camera. Um, and he went into our, our, our campus darkroom and he came out and he had created the most remarkable image of the black block anarchists with, with mask, you know, a gas mask, um, you know, like surrounded by like a phalanx of, of militarized police, like everyone was like foggy and completely like lost in tear gas. And like, I, I, you know, I'll just never forget that moment, seeing that photo of what he witnessed um, and realizing that like, okay, you know, th this is, this is what um, a certain type of protest looks like on the West coast in the U S yeah, um, yeah. and th this seems to be the thing that, you know, a lot, a lot of stuff were happening at those WTO meetings, formal delegations, different forms of activism, but that direct action of the Black Bloc was the thing that seemed to really create a sense of urgency to what mm -hmm. was happening, you know, on all sides and, you know, in, in spurring people to negotiate and change those trade agreements. And for me as a scholar, now I look back and that's really like the moment where what many people consider like an academic discipline, which is called political ecology, or like the study of the environmental politics of different societies, or the studying the politics of the environment, politics of environmental change. Um, that's like really when political ecology, I think, was no longer just an academic discipline as, as it was mm -hmm. like in the 80s. And it really became like a almost a blueprint, if you will, for yeah. activism, activism. And so like for the first time, I think people were out in 1999 in the Battle of Seattle, you know, talk, calling themselves political ecologists and, and mm. you know, creating uh, messaging that was informed by political ecology and also picking up, you know, some of these tactics that were coming out of Europe, coming out of South America, um, these more confrontational direct action ta tactics that, um, mm -hmm. you, you know, you hadn't seen that much of in the U.S. until then. 
Um, like in the cities, in the countryside, there was certainly direct action, um, but it all felt a little bit different after 99, I think. Yeah, people that have been really I do, following it. I, I do remember, because um, I, I got to give a, a mention, a shout out to uh, Xander uh, Dunlap for showing us uh, in our film class uh, at Oslo, showing us, uh, what was it called? Uh, If a Tree Falls, uh, Story of the Earth Liberation mm-hmm. Front. Uh, mm-hmm. And I, and that was, I think that was in the 90s, right? And those, mm-hmm. um, so a series of arson attacks or alleged arson attacks, uh, which targeted, um, you know, industrial complex kind of buildings and and businesses and things that these activists uh, deemed to be uh, ecologically and socially uh, destructive and and. And yeah, and and attacking with arson, and and I, I remember watching that film and just like thinking about how these kind of tactics uh, are are kind of missing these days, I guess, or seem like at least maybe maybe they're not. You know, I also know that there are uh, so there is things happening all the time, and the uh, sometimes we just don't hear much about it if you're not connected to the right kind of networks and things. But um, but when I look at like the protests in England, which Jamie was uh, just before talking about the big one in uh, coming up in the UK or <laughs> or the ones in France, it, it feels like maybe the direct action stuff is kind of missing. I was Jamie, can you actually tell us just a little bit quickly about the the stuff happening in the UK because that might be of interest for the context. Yeah, sure. I mean, there's there are generally sort of different protests going on and sometimes they coincide with the strikes the strikes as of today that is the uh the 24th of march are going relatively strong i think the uh the rmt's made a few breakthroughs but yeah the um the big one is kind of notable because it's it's sort of the first um in in you know this year the first intersectional uh, major intersectional protest between a variety of environmental groups and civil society groups that are opposing um the sort of austerity measures and but also allying with the uh with the nurses so i guess that could be seen to to mark sort of a big um a big change in the movement uh, hopefully for the better hmm. yeah i mean i would say that you know there's an analysis that can be done about earth liberation front and forms of activism that have moved forward. Um, and, and I don't really agree with you that direct action is missing, like, you know, as a blanket statement, I think, you know, in certain, certain protest movements, um, you know, like extinction rebellion, right. Mostly in the UK, um, they kind of Mm -hmm. style themselves as a direct action group. Um, and they are doing direct action. You know, they're doing like sit-ins. Yeah. They're blocking offices. Yeah, yeah. They're yeah. they're they're blocking roads. Um, mm. But and it's this really interesting kind of professionalized, um, almost like le- legitimized in the eyes of the state type of direct action. Mm, exactly. It's yeah. very it's very performative, right? Um, mm-hmm. And I've participated in in protests like that. Um, Mm-hmm. where people ahead of time really decide if they're interested in taking an arrest as people call it taking yeah. an arrest or not um and i think that certainly you've seen like a lot of attention a lot of conversation a lot of debate um a lot of critique of the of extinction rebellion but you know they're bringing some real energy and you always have to give that a lot of respect i think the downside of that type of 
performative direct action is that you're never really challenging the militarized state's like ability to control mm-hmm. a situation. Yeah, and, you yeah. know, for, for me, and I think as anyone, ha- if you've ever experienced it, like the moment um, a direct action reaches, like, you know, if it's a protest march, for example, or if it's something more like a riot, like the moment, like this kind of tipping point is reached and the police and, you know, other security forces are no longer really in charge of this situation, you mm-hmm. kind of start to feel um, that the state itself can be challenged in a way that I think yeah. before, before, before those type of situations happen, people don't really conceptualize of. I mean, I think it's easy for us to think that we exist in a state that is pretty omnipotent, maybe even hegemonic, no real you know, fundamental resistance Mm -hmm. can happen. But like, you know, the moment the street or the block is no longer under control of the police, like the feelings that are engendered, the subjectivities that are created, um, it can be pretty different. It can make people think differently about the state for a very long time after that. Um, But like, you know, in the US, you like definitely have to look at Standing Rock, which wasn't that long ago, Mm -hmm. you know, the the effort to to stop the Dakota Access Pipeline. yeah and um you know that was a remarkable mobilization i think for many reasons one of them was because of the kind of solidarity politics that were on display between native americans between indian country the indigenous people first peoples of the u.s and settler settler colonists like myself like white people um and it it wasn't just you know obviously there are people of all kinds all colors like the full rainbow was out in standing rock and you know, that was pretty special, I think. Um, and something that I think like a lot of people are hoping to recreate. Um, yeah. Of course, block- blockades have been like an interest of mine recently. I just published mm-hmm. a paper about them. And um, yeah, so yeah, let's talk about blockades. And, yeah. And, and um, you know, the I think to spin out just a really quick analysis of what happened with Earth Liberation Front, you know, this was a pretty radicalized, you know, they've been called eco-terrorist group. Um this was a group that wasn't interested in hurting people or any living mm-hmm. beings. So in my, in my perspective, they were completely devoted to nonviolence. They were, com- they were completely yeah. not violent, mm-hmm. um, but they did believe in property destruction as a way of disrupting um, some of the ills that have been done to the environment, mm-hmm. specifically the, the logging of just ancient, beautiful redwood forest um, mm-hmm. in California mm-hmm. and the West coast. Also, um, in different sites in the Northwest Oregon and Washington, um, not redwoods, but other old growth forests. Um, and also in like development, you know, one of their, their biggest actions would they, they, I think they firebombed, um, the Aspen ski resort. The ski resort that like, was being built. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Which is one of the kind of bougiest, you know, most exclusive, like real type, like 1% or like 0.01% of, a, of the U S kind of place that was expanding into some real wilderness. Um, but yeah, those type of tactics, you don't really see on the scene much in the U S anymore. I mean, there's been small little kind of like wildfires of those things. And in my analysis, um, and in speaking to some people, um, you know, I think there's kind of like a bit of a consensus in people that are looking critically at social movements saying like, you know, the amount of repression that members of ELF, received from the state was astonishing i mean absolutely astonishing um two i believe two people were killed um while police were on on scene at uh like a a 
free occupation or like a tree sit in mm-hmm. um, where people would, you know, they, they would create these beautiful tents and hammocks way up in the top of these redwoods. So loggers couldn't cut them down without, yeah. you know, pro- po- possibly killing the activists and um, you know, uh, a famous activist, Luna, she, you know, I think she's, I can't remember how long, if it was years, it was, I think it was over a year at least, you know, she protected one tree. Um, but wow. yeah, uh, uh, eventually I think while police were on scene, a logger cut down one of those trees with the activists in it and he was killed. And, um, you know, the, there's, you know, th- this has come out now that time has passed and people can get their own FBI file. I mean, just intense surveillance, not even surveillance, but like these co-intel pro type of programs were directed against ELF um, where, you know, people were being tricked into believing some people were, were um, collaborating with the state and some people were activists. And then um, one of the great leaders of the ELF or not leaders, but like publicists, um, Mm -hmm. he like got like in this whole catfish scam that was like done by the FBI, the FBI wanted to know more about the identities of the people he knew. This guy was living in Portland and uh, they, they had a fake publisher, like uh, this guy who claimed he was a book publisher sit, tell the ELF publicist he wanted to write his book. So would he please like write a book for him as a way of trying to get like more Intel out of a written ELF. confession. Um, literally. <laughs> yeah. This, this just broke in the New York times. I think, um, maybe in February, uh, um, this guy is kind of all, they put it together and, you know, it happened, you know, almost 20 years ago, I yeah. think now, but now that they could get the guy's FBI file and they could put it all together. And I was like pretty astonished, like, wow, the FBI was going to great lengths to try to like infiltrate. Oh, hell yeah. But you know, but yeah, yeah. The, the, you know, the, the analysis is that like, wow, okay. Those type of movements are going to be disassembled like really quick. And ELF was, I mean, people are doing life, people are doing long jail time, just like, um, you know, people associated with Standing Rock are doing long jail time now. And it mm-hmm, looks like mm-hmm. the same in Atlanta city you know, as well. This, yeah. Yeah. The stop cop city already one activist has been killed. It looks like, uh, yeah. you know, we know he was unarmed and he was shot like 20 times with his hands up. Yeah, um, yeah. so, you know, they, they, they actually, I think, have been replicating most closely, like the Standing Rock book. You know, they're not, um, they're 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 occupying the forest, but they're not like really doing like a, a real anta- antagonistic like destruction of property. Although, like, there have been some some like fire bombings of construction equipment. Um, mm-hmm. Well, but but that's pretty common um, in like occupation and blockade movements where yeah. things, you know, you, usually like these machines of destruction of, that represent capitalism in the state are, become targets of activists. And, mm-hmm. but, but yeah, I think people really felt like the ELF strategy was just so risky in the society yeah, that yeah. we live in. Um, so things like blockades, things like, you know, street protests, um, even riots uh, have become really like the way that the press can mobilize in a way that speaks really. Yeah. Yeah, that isn't just hugely risky um, yeah. for, for their own well-being. And um, just and honing it, in on the, sorry, just honing on the blockades real quick. You, you mentioned an article that you wrote, which is, uh, I really, really recommend it. It's a super great read, um, Shutting Down the Machines of Destruction. 
I think it's also f uh, open access, right? Like there's a there's a free. I hope, I hope so. I think I hope so. <laughs> Uh, for those of you who who don't have uh, a university uh, login or or uh, aren't able to use uh, the magic uh, crow website uh, SciHub, uh, <laughs> and yeah, maybe that... you guys could put it up for me somewhere. Yeah, sure. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and in that article, you analyze the tool of the blockade really, um, and you focus on the land back movement right in Sumatra. Um, and you explain how these blockades are central to anarchist, indigenous, and decolonial politics. Um, can you maybe tell us, for people who haven't ever seen a protest blockade in their life or haven't been to one, can you maybe describe kind of what I guess what it entails, the risks, but also the possibilities? Because that's a lot of what you focus on is the possibilities that blockades create and the potential that they hold as a liberation tool and struggles yeah sure i mean it really came out of what we've been talking about um you know this interest in direct action and what can actually work and um you know a blockade I, i've been i've been going back and forth between indonesia and california um since since 2007 um and as someone that was interested in activism and and was a i guess you could call a professional activist um which is, I think, kind of a silly term. But before I went to grad school, I, I wanted to keep um, like deepening my understanding of those type of movements. So in Indonesia, a blockade can be pretty different from some of the protests maybe our listeners have joined. Um, like I'm thinking about like the kind of anti-Trump mm -hmm. um, protests that happened like at the airports a number of years <laughs> ago in the U.S. where it's like, you know, you, you can bring your kids and you can wear face paint and you get to just kind of sing and, and, and relax um, that, you know, their blockades are generally much more confrontational um, often um, in where I work, you know, Sumatra, Kalimantan, Java um, often they're against these massive industrial oil palm plantations or logging operations that were created just right on top of, of people's lands and territories Um you know, if there, there are many indigenous groups in those areas, um, often there are people that identify as indigenous, often they're not, they're, you know, part of the kind of mainstream uh, Javanese majority of Indonesia. Um, but these are people that have been living in these places for a very long time, consider them theirs, even if the state won't recognize their rights to the land. Um, and they found that it's very efficacious. Um, it can also be quite risky, but they found to... You know, if once negotiations break down, people don't feel like there's any other avenue. The government's no longer listening to them. The companies that run these massive zones of capitalist exploitation aren't listening anymore. They, it's pretty easy. It doesn't take too much organization to get a crew together and go up and sit on a road, for example. Or like as fa famously, the Penan mm -hmm. peoples of Kalimantan in the 90s kind of sparked the world rainforest movement by constructing blockades out of just simple felled branches and small trees um, and standing behind them and refusing, you know, to, to, to let the logging trucks, the bulldozers, these machines of destruction um, pass. And, you know, I, I started really wondering like, okay, these types of actions can be very inspiring. 
Um, they can mm. also be very risky for the people that are involved. You know, there's been arrests. Um, there's been criminalization of activists. There's there's even been like targeted killings and assassinations of activists that have engaged in blockades. So like mm. if the point is not just to, to do like a spectacular display of activism, but really like if the point is to change it, you know, to change the way that capitalism is unfolding as a set of relations in the countryside if the exploitation of people in the environments it's not just about like momentarily stopping mm -hmm. the work at this plantation or or that um, logging estate like it's really about like going and having some impact in the nurse center you know of this capitalist exploitation um, and like allowing movements to grow and to build dual power, right? This, this type of power that exists outside of the state and amongst people and activists, um, are blockades like doing anything. And, you know, I first wrote about a blockade, um, I think it was like 2012, I published, um, kind of a, a magazine article about a blockade, um, in West Kalimantan, this part of, of Borneo, Indonesian Borneo. And, um, you know, these people with, with great risk went against one of the just shadiest oil palm companies that exists. You know, they're, they're, they're due to Palma. They're owned by like an ex general um, of the mm -hmm. military mm -hmm. dictatorship that ran for almost 50 years in Indonesia. This was like, you know, one of the most authoritarian and violent regimes in, in, in global, like modern history, global history. And, one of the real bad folks in that regime now runs this kind of small oil palm company. And they're, you know, they, they act with complete impunity. Um, but, but even in a place like that, um, some, some Dayak peoples um, after a very long struggle um, decided to blockade uh, the, the kind of one road in and out of this oil palm plantation that was built just right in their, in the in their territories this remarkable forest you know this tall tall lowland kind of hill forest of borneo that is just so rich in in culture and ecology yeah. but you know they shut it down for a few days but then they had to go eat you know they they didn't really mm. have like a huge network supporting them yeah. um and they were lucky that they weren't maybe killed or like um or, or arrested i mean people in that community have been arrested many times for their activism already so they were kind of lucky, but the blockade only lasted a few days, right? And eventually, you know, the palm oil plantation has like all been built and planted. Um, yeah. So there's like a lot, there's a lot of ways I think you can look at like a blockade like that and be like, what's the point? Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, it has to be effective as, also at the end of the day. Yeah, but like really going in deeper, you really like start to realize that like upholding like this type of sacrifice spurs action and like reflection in other places mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. that broader movements like a, a blockade like that as a single kind of one-off like they were connected to some really important groups like Sawit Watch or Oil Palm Watch um Sawit Watch in Indonesian Oil Oil Palm Watch um has been supporting like resistance movements like this all over um so they were connected but like you know, some movements in Sumatra that are very much more supported by like formal social movement organizations and that can sustain blockades and occupations for like years sometimes. Like mm. then we start see seeing what seems to be like, you know, you're certainly slowing down these forms of capitalist exploitation. You're mm -hmm. certainly building mo movements and these movements have like ebbs and flows and they go up and down. Right now it kind of feels yeah. like 
they're in a bit of an ebb. Um, but that's like one of the best times to kind of rethink um, these strategies and, and try to understand them better. So I, I ended up kind of spending a bit more time in Sumatra because of what like, you know, now I think maybe like, I don't know, three decades ago, scholars first started calling the new social movements. Um, these are movements in places like Sumatra, but also like the Zapatistas might be the best mm-hmm. best example of them um, in Mexico. These are movements that aren't really too hung up on hierarchies. They're not really Marxist mm-hmm. in that way. Um, they're more kind of anarchist in that they're really pretty committed to like some radical forms of non-hierarchy and kind yeah, of looser yeah. organization. Um, and they're picking and up indigenous forms of, of like indigenous forms of organizations as well. Right. Yeah. And, and that's one of the things that we see like out there in the discourse, the social movements that really bothers me is like all these mostly white guys that call themselves aren't anarchists and somehow think that like indigenous forms of activism and politics are, um either not anarchist or they are or like they they're so different than anarchism and indigeneity um it's just like this weird policing of the boundaries and like i think you know mm-hmm. scholars like indigenous scholars in the u.s like nick estes um or like a settler colonial scholar like david graver um really see that like anarchist ideas and indigenous forms of resistance and politics have a lot in common. They've really been informed um, by each other. Um, certainly now, um, like in the present day, I think maybe, you know, a hundred years ago, they were quite a bit more removed, but you know, there's really no reason to be like policing those boundaries. Um, but like, yeah, you see that like this, these new social movements, like, you know, they have a subaltern identity. That's like part of it, mm-hmm, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and so that could be an indigenous Id- identity. It could be like, you know, an outlaw identity. It could be like in the U.S. kind of like, and in Indonesia, that's one of the really interesting commonalities. Like there's this whole kind of street street aspect of these protests. So it's like in Indonesia, it's very like kind of punk rock, kind of street unhoused mm. youth, kind of like, squ- and, you know, and then, and then in Europe, it's like, uh, I don't know if it's like hip hop now or punk rock still, but it's like, you know, the squatters. Um, there's a lot know, of rap. Street, street there's kids. a huge amount of like in France, for example, I know a huge amount of rap culture is connected to the like protest movements and in the UK mm-hmm. as well. Um, like UK rappers, uh, you know, uh, like they, I'm trying to think, but of course, when I'm on the spot, I can't remember any names of any rappers i listen to <laughs> <laughs> the british ones uh, uh, but i mean ones, yeah I the soundtrack all them all the time you know, yeah. yeah what's the soundtrack to like your your movement like oh man the bay area has some amazing music um you know movement music definitely rap is a big part of it um but like yeah i mean i think they might need a new name now, the new social movements, because they've been around for so long. I mean, basically mm-hmm. my whole life. Um, and, but, you know, I think we don't need to get too caught up on names, but I like to think of them kind of like as movements for life. And they're about like, you know, creating a new future to capitalism. As I said, it's about like subaltern identity. It's really like autonomy, like the the way, you know, mm-hmm. to determine how to live mm-hmm. your life, what type of work you're going to do, where you're going to do it, right? So it like brings in a lot of the 
migrant movements. Um, I'd like to even think like Black Lives Matter in the U.S. is is kind of one of these movements. Um, although, you know, the the boundaries of like solidarity kind of like break apart and are reconstructed, I think, constantly. But like one thing that really brings all these movements together is like their repertoire and like an occupation and a blockade um, are really important parts of these movements and seem to be the parts that really kind of get the state's attention. Um, and we understand them as like, you know, they're, they came out of the 20th century and they're different from the movements that came before them in that those were almost always armed kind of Maoist Marxist movements. And these are much more about direct action, like repertoires. So, you know, they're doing this machine break in we were talking about to a kind of limited extent, the street marches, riots and then strikes right and that's kind of how how you can group all these places all these movements in different places together i think which is useful because i feel like one way you're going to build this dual power is is by creating connections not like especially within academics if anyone's out there like not within critiquing and you know bringing a heightened focus to like internal disagreements that's that's been kind of the the mode of social movement studies for a very long time. And, mm. and finally we're getting some support to kind of like move beyond that to say like, yes, okay, we need to understand internal degree disagreements. We need to reflect on them, but that shouldn't be the point of, of nearly every form of like study of social mm. movements to like yeah. expose the internal contradictions of them. So with this last paper and with, you know, I have a book co coming out about reclaiming land um, as kind of part of this movement. Um, you know, I, I really try to like focus on connections and things that were important and transformative to people and also kind of like the risks versus like, you know, if you want to be like very materialist about it, like the risks versus like benefits of this type of action. Um and just let and just letting like a lot of the internal disagreements that are natural and happen in every community, whether they be an activist community or not, like no, no, there's no community or society in the world where everyone agrees. Right. Mm -hmm. So is that really, should that really be like always the focus and should we ever even expect like one of the big things that I hear around, um, especially indigenous communities is like, well, they're not all against, illegal gold mining in their territory in the Amazon. So, you know, <laughs> what do you expect? Um, yeah. But, you know, I think like when I, I've been out to places that are dealing with that problem and you always have, you know, some people that are working really hard to stop it. Some people that are just trying to survive on the day to day and a few people that are like really benefiting and happy to have those things happen. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, I mean, we, they're, they're we human kind of, just like yeah. everybody else. I think that's one of the big mistakes we make mm -hmm. is we kind of, put them uh, indigenous people in like a kind of almost like dehumanize them by yeah. putting in the category of like they're all going to be against box, yeah. one thing or they're all going to be for one thing when really like yeah they're as heterogeneous as any other group like of course some of them are going to be you know working with oppressors as every kind of group has that too i, I think it's a huge it's a, it's a very strange thing that, that happens. Uh, I just quickly want to say Loki was the the rapper in the UK that I was looking for. Oh, but, cool. I mean, I mean, there's great ones from the US too, you know, like I, I think the U US, as far as I can see, is more 
like punk rock, a little bit of rap to like Rage Against the Machine, Dead Kennedys, System of a Down, that sort of stuff. Um, but yeah. I got to give my shout out to uh, Dead Prez then. I've worked with them before yeah. a little bit. Like, yeah, you know, they they, yeah. they have this thing, hip hop group. Uh, they have this thing, Revolutionary, um, but Gangsta, RBG. I mean, that's like a full on movement. Mm. One of their One of their main rappers is an incredible organizer out of the South um and then my boy unity lewis uh he's got some amazing protest tracks that are always banging in the in the bay area and uh i don't know who i guess i guess from really badass really boots riley the coup the coup is like you know they've i've heard their music at every protest i've ever been to in the bay area basically over however long and you know, they have an album, Steal This Album, which I think is just, like, <laughs> incre- incredibly hilarious. You know, they're like, look, we know we need to survive. We need to sell our stuff. But if you see this in a record store, just steal it. Just don't pay for it. <laughs> um, and, you know, Boots Riley uh, has a has a, a lot of reflection about protest, too, and it's important. His parents were kind of classic old school union organizers um, in Oakland. Oh, right black then they kind of became black panthers he really just like tupac did um you know tupac's mother was a black panther and um if you guys haven't read the book panther baby um you got to check it out it's about uh, it's about um yeah a a young black man that grew up in the black panthers and then became the godfather to tupac um and, and he's now i forget the author's name he's now uh a professor i think at columbia of journalism and it's it's a remarkable look mm-hmm. into like the Bay Area and 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 also the East Coast yeah. and the rise of the Panthers and how their kind of legacy. But yeah, Boots Riley's got this lyric um, that I kind of copped. I kind of took uh, in some of my writing. I, I hope he doesn't mind. But it's like <laughs> it's about uh, you know what is a riot, you know, and he like talks about what a, a riot is um, and like its political potential. I thought that was pretty cool. Um, and you know, I think. Yeah, if, if we're really going to talk about blockades and, and other things, um, riots, like I think one thing that I, I, I identified along with others, um, and, and my article is like part of a special issue on blockades, actually, I should say. So there's, I think there's like 13 pieces that have now been published about blockades all over the world and the different forms they take. And, um, but like one of the things I think that the whole special issue really identified, um, is like the reason that they're effective is because they really do like disrupt this transport and infrastructure and like commodity flows in the economy in a way that like is very much an affront to power, to capitalist power, to the state. Um, You know, and it kind of goes along with this idea of like choke points, which is like there's certain places in the infrastructure, the built infrastructure of our global economy that are, are like incredibly fragile. Um, And like the, the U S like the, the like our militarized bureaucracy has already identified many of them themselves like in because they're so concerned about quote unquote terrorism but like you know different ones and some some of the same are, could be like really interesting places to think about like um the effects of direct action um so yeah th- that's that's i think you know if you're going to take anything away from like the study of blockades like what is the work that they're really doing um i think it is that um that well, there's kind of twofold thing. It's like one blockades and, and occupations really bring together and create affinities in a way that's pretty unique. You get to really get to know people when you talk to them and you mm-hmm. experience that, um, 
And then, yeah, that, that they can really kind of, you know, if you envision what sustains the state and, and what that's form of capitalism, many of us are like living under, if you envision what sustains that is like this flow of commodity and goods, then, you know, a blockade is, is something that can actually, you know, disrupt that in a very real way, a very like material way. I'd really like to ask you about your sort of ideas and experience around uh, the role of the situation uh, that universities play in, I guess, either fueling these these new movements, these new traditions of activism and struggle for sort of systemic change against the state, but also opposing that. And I guess that can be sort of on a basis of ideas, you know, like disseminating ideas for or against struggle against the state or in favour of or against the status quo, but also sort of more direct action these universities play uh, in themselves in sort of aiding or opposing the state. Yeah, I mean, I wish I knew more about that, honestly, because I feel like, you know, where I've been and done my education, they're not places like I've always imagined, like, you know, in the some of the uprisings like in iran i'm like thinking about like the early arab spring and like tunisia it seemed like and then of course in south america like the universities like play this like really potent force Mm. in mobilizing like it's often students right that are really getting these demonstrations going and then once they're kind of established like greater parts of society come out like i never went to a place like that um you know, uh, I have definitely heard that activism is a bad word in where I've been trained as a mm. scholar. Um, so that's, you know, that's been difficult. And I feel really grateful to have found a supporter um, that has brought me to Berkeley and kind of said, oh, yeah, you know, we're interested in this. And, you know, this is this is valid academic research, but it feels, you know, I'm still quite precarious myself you know I'm on a year-to-year contract as a researcher um it feels like I'm sometimes at the kind of bouncing around at the end of a diving board um not sure if I'm gonna like dive off or fall off you know (laughs) um (laughs) trying to study activism and also like engage you know continue political engagements and (laughs) it can be frustrating because right now we're like in an era um, of really deep change and reflection in academics about how do we decolonize the American universities. Um, You know, Mm -hmm. this is now a really a a global conversation in academia. Um, And I would say the U.S. is definitely behind places like New Zealand, probably Australia, probably Canada, um, in kind of taking on these really troubled colonial legacies and origins of the of the university system so like we we are in a moment of real reflection and people you know want to do things but that said you know the actual support for political engagement on campus still feels really risky like um i saw as a researcher in, um like in the uc system mm-hmm. graduate students were definitely being punished for taking part in a legally sanctioned strike you know this was a this was not a wildcat strike right our um and there as graduate students their right to strike was legally protected by the constitution um, and by a long body of law but still they were facing you know punishment from from their their supervisors um so 
you know, it feels like a difficult, difficult space to take. And of course, right now, you know, for like listeners outside of the U.S., you know, we're seeing like this huge Christian fundamentalist mm-hmm. white nationalist movement to ban books, um, to to get books out of libraries, um, to erase, you know, what they call critical race theory from from high school, um, you know, outside of the university system, but also within, you know, the state funded public universities, there's like a huge movement um, that's pressuring, you know, people, especially scholars of color, you know, trying to, to, to make it impossible for them to do their work. I mean, we have cases of people that have spoken out on behalf of Palestine, someone I've worked with, actually, maybe I won't Mm -hmm. name them right now, but they are a human rights lawyer on the highest level. And because because they have public publicly said that they believe what's happening in Palestine is a form of genocide or or I don't even know if he used that word actually I think mm-hmm. maybe he just said it it's cl- clear violations of Palestinians human rights are unfolding in the occupied mm-hmm. territories which I think is a pretty uncontroversial thing to say like his career has been damaged yeah. um he has not been um he's been put forward for jobs and he's not received them like explicitly because of those comments that he's made. So, you know, mm-hmm. all of these things feel very real. And I think for some, like I'm lucky enough to have some pretty like old school mentors um, that were pretty involved and, in, you know, they were labeled Marxist, maybe they're pretty, pretty active in like anti-war movements. Um, you know, environmental movements, you know, and I think that their perspective is like the window for dissent is narrowing, not opening. Um, and in, you know, in it's harder for, yeah. And okay. it's harder for me to, to really know that because I'm a bit younger. Um, but, you know, certainly it feels like, you know, the, the number of people that are really um, in, universities that are like true outspoken like cultural critics political critics it feels maybe like it's less than it used to be i mean i really don't know but yeah i I think that um we understand like state and corporate domination as taking many forms and we understand that this kind of state and corporate domination have been unfolding now since like the sixties in a certain form. And it only seems like in many ways, like their power has, has only consolidated. At least that's how I feel just generally um, in society. But again, it's always so hard to know, you know? And I think that that's like one of the beautiful things about mobilization and social movements. When you start studying them, you kind of like see all these researchers or like, it used to be almost exclusively political scientists talking about places like Indonesia or Vietnam or like the peasant wars in South America, all these researchers are saying, Oh, nothing's really going on in this place. Everyone's kind of happy. And then like two <laughs> years later, there'll be like a full on revolution, you know? Um, so I think yeah. if anything, you know, one of the lessons is, is like the spontaneity and the surprise of mm-hmm. these movements. And like, mm-hmm. you know, right now it feels like California's kind of in one of those moments. Like we, you know, we had some just remarkable, interesting kind of late Trump kind of Black Lives Matter, like anti-police brutality protests happening and a lot of conversation about change. You know, all the schools where I live, all, all of them changed their name to kind of 
in an effort to undo the Celeroconalus legacy. Um, like now the school next to me, you know, is named after, I think it was Jefferson, you know, a president, kind of controversial president because of like his connections to slavery. And anyway, now it's Rosa Parks school, which, you know, R R Rosa Parks is one of the great w women leaders of the black civil rights movement in the 60s. Yeah. So like, there's so have really things cool really movement. materially changed too in terms of like police budgets, in terms of militarization of the streets, of schools. Uh, that's also the the harder part, I think, of the conversations. Like sometimes those movements get co-opted or like change. As much as I, you know, appreciate obviously the movements that we've seen in the US over the past few years, for sure. I think it's also, I guess it's like important but scary in a way to kind of look at like how those have also been co-opted and, and how they've unfortunately fallen into a bit of a performative uh, kind of activism sometimes in, in some regards yeah that's that's exactly i mean i i agree and you know i do think like the changing uh names of schools like um you know, it might not be quite as significant as, as like the way the police are organized um, in our society, that's for sure. But it does matter. Uh, and it does matter about kind of, you yeah. know, and, and we see this huge reactionary response in the U.S. to things like this. You know, the taking down of the Confederate statues, the renaming of schools, you know, the white right, the white nationalists and the white supremacists, you know, it really triggers them. I hate using that word with those people because they're so violent and scary, but it really sets them off um, mm -hmm. like these things because like it's a recentering of our society away from whiteness and away from, you know, hopefully some of the most damaging parts of our society. So whereas, you know, it, it might not be like real fundamental change. I don't really see it as so much as like co-option co that part, but like we certainly mm -hmm. see co-option happening you know in in movements across the world that are directed against capitalist exploitation you know that's one of the biggest yeah. problems uh, um you know i've worked with people who gain some momentum as activists you know are speaking out against like an oil palm plantation and and the way it destroyed their watersheds is like poisoning the water mm -hmm. um or took people's like um incredible diverse food forests or agroforests as scientists call them where they're growing all these like important food crops and selling it on their own and now the company just kind of takes that stuff and disparagingly calls it secondary forest of little value um in this weird kind of co-option of like ecology and then you know they'll after speaking out for like a few years and gaining some no notoriety as a critic like before you know it they're on the payroll of the oil palm company as mm -hmm. like a, a a community relations person and mm -hmm. they're mm -hmm. they're working and you know buying people is just one of the 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 most straightforward ways of co-opting movements and it's something that i don't know i never could felt like i can fault anyone for um because you know money is so important in the world we live in and you know, a lot of these people don't have any of it. Um, so I've always tried to just, you know, keep bridges open with people and communication going, especially as a researcher and not like bring a lot of judgment to those decisions. But once you step back and kind of think about movements more generally, like you see that form of co-option. 
is being, you know, one of the most fundamental. And, and in the U S you kind of see it with like the, as I was mentioning before, like the professionalization of activism where like you have these young, um, like newly created organizations that are in the streets that are doing direct action that are like doing blockades of offices, maybe of oil companies, uh, some, you know, and then they start getting foundation money and they start becoming more and more institutionalized and they don't necessarily grow in size, but their tactics change, you know, like Greenpeace in the U S no longer does direct action. I'm pretty sure as far as I know, you know, they started as a pretty confrontational direct action group. And now once they become so institutionalized, they're kind of professional report writers Um, Mm -hmm. or, you know, I, I I don't know. I'm just trying to think, I'm not sure it's an official policy of Greenpeace. I just can't remember the last time I've ever seen like anything that looked like direct action from Greenpeace USA. Greenpeace, uh, uh, yeah, USA, I can't speak yeah. for, but in Norway, I do remember um, their action. Actually, big shout out to Jonas uh, Kittelsen, one of my classmates who who uh, worked with Greenpeace. I, I know in stopping uh, and in like attaching themselves and stopping a. Uh, a Russian oil tanker that was bringing like mm. dozens of millions of of oil uh, from Russia a few months ago. No, was it a few months ago? I think it was just after the start of the war in Ukraine, and they literally just went out there and like attached themselves to the angst of this massive, massive boat, like huge thing. I can't, I couldn't even comprehend the size of it on the pictures, and they just attached themselves to an anchor that was the size of a fucking house, and like basically, yeah, just stood there trying to like create a conversation i guess just by in a way blockading the ship right creating a sort of protest yep. blockade with their little mini boats paddle boats and just standing there and just being like yeah you're not coming through into our fucking into our town like get out of here <laughs> and in the end i think if i'm if i'm right you know any listener correct me if i'm wrong but i do believe that they were actually successful and that the ship was sent back to moscow without any or moscow to a seafaring city without any um of the oil being uh dispensed and and so but i i can't speak for the greenpeace usa obviously um i don't know how they've been doing i i do notice that we we don't have a huge amount of time left and i, I really really wanted to talk about sumatra because i think the work you've done there seems to be super interesting um so specifically the aaron volcano if I'm pronouncing it right, um, there's mm-hmm. a self-proclaimed peasants union, right? Uh, that occupied the bankrupt industrial ranch for the better part of 20 years. I, as I see or more than 20 years. Um, can you tell us a bit about, so you wrote uh, a, a bit about this. Can you tell us about kind of what, how it unfolded and what's been learned in this struggle uh, on Aaron Volcano? Yeah, for sure. And, you know, I think it, it's a nice segue because you're talking about like Greenpeace and, you know, are their actions accomplishing anything? Um, is this like revolutionary activity? Does it have explicit revolutionary intent? Um, this, These are all kind of like the issues that come out of what happened on the Aden volcano, where, as you say, a group of people that called themselves peasants um, took back land that they they say they've been in control of since like time immemorial. So that, 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 would make them in like many people's definition, like a, an indigenous movement as well. They're people that identify as Minangkabau, which is one of the largest indigenous groups in Indonesia. And 
you know, it kind of shows like the limits um, of like, or at least the, it kind of shows how you can't just port ideas of what an indigenous person is from one place to another, because like the Minicabao people had like an incredible role in the formation of the Indonesian Republic. You know, Indonesia is, I think, the fourth largest country in the world, the largest Muslim democracy. And like the Minicao people helped form that in the, at the highest levels, um, from being one of the first vice presidents to the first secretaries of state. So they're not um, a group that's been incredibly marginalized in Indonesia, but certainly they do have longstanding land claims um, to this place. And, you know, during the colonization of the Indonesian archipelago by the Dutch, um, who first brought like plantation agriculture, large scale industrial monocultures, you know, these long rows of single crops. First, they were really doing sugar cane and tobacco, and then they moved to rubber and then finally oil palm. Um, you know, a lot of Minicabao people lost their land in, in these processes of creating plantations. And on the Aden volcano, it was first a logging concession that was given to like one of the first real agribusinesses to ever exist in our world um, in the 1800s. It was like a European conglomerate um, of a number of financiers from from a bunch of different di different countries in 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 Europe, and they start creating this very vertically integrated system of creating commodities in the archipelago and getting them back through a number of ports back to Europe, and that mm -hmm. is you know, to this day, kind of what you think of as an agribusiness being. Um, so after having their land um, taken from them during Dutch colonization, they, they kind of are able to get it back for a brief few years um, after the mm -hmm. Japanese invaded Sumatra during World War II okay. and kicked out the Dutch. Um, and the Japanese were just as brutal, if not more so, more than the Dutch. But once the Japanese had to like do a hasty retreat at the end of World War II, there these people were able to kind of go up and, and get their land back. And then in, in 1968, um, with the rise of Major General Suharto um, in one of like the world's bloodiest programs, I mean, the exact numbers of how many people were killed by this military regime to, to create what's called the New Order in Indonesia are kind of unknown, but possibly like a million leftists, um, hmm. people of all stripes, um, their history on the Aden volcanoes is wrapped up in that like terrible moment of history. And within a year, their land um, had become a plantation again. And it was given to a, a, a like a poli military police officer to run a new plantation company, um, which ran mm -hmm. uh, um, kind of off and on it never seemed to, it was a small agribusiness, um, never seemed to be that effective if, if we kind of completely believe, uh, the way that people talk about it there, which I think is like an interesting issue when studying social movements, like these histories are political histories and they're also political expressions of the present about like people's strength and attachment to the land today. So of course, um, people are are going to create like historical narratives that support ongoing struggles. But so maybe the plantation was a lot stronger and never went bankrupt. I don't really know. But and I never was able to really find out with, you know, after years of research about the place. But um, eventually they were as Suharto's regime, the New Order finally started to kind of weaken. They started going up and just occupying the land. Um, and then once they occupied the land, they started to get a bit of support by some of the um, community 
governance organizations that exist because of this Minica Bao history and identity, these more mainstream um, institutions started supporting what, what was up to that point, really like an activist um, struggle associated with what eventually became one of the largest self-styled peasant unions in Indonesia, the Indonesian Peasant Union, which is active like across mm-hmm. Western Indonesia and, and a bit in the Eastern Islands too. Um, they're just one of many um, kind of like new social movements, like we've been talking about organizations that exist in Indonesia in the countryside, but like they're, they're one of the largest and they're a federation of many, or they used to be a federation of many groups. Now they have a more kind of hierarchical structure, which might be contributing a bit to their lo- loss of like movement power right now. But anyway, in the, it, starting in the nineties, these people started occupying this plantation Um, There are a number of like blockades that happened and showdowns with military forces, with corporate forces. There was a lawsuit that the company brought against some of the activists. Um, But through it all, this community, this community of Casiovera, they are able to to hold on to the land. Um, And as of today, um, they are using that land to become kind of what they consider small, small holders, modern family farmers. Um, And, to me, it's like it it really shows to return to this idea of like revolutionary potential. It really shows how, you know, these people never thought of themselves as revolutionaries. They never thought of themselves as like overthrowing the state um, in their actions. Um, for a while, a long while, they were just content to just kind of quietly go about occupying the edges of this plantation. And then eventually once Suharto fell, the new order fell, it was like this real awakening there was this archipelago wide land reclamation movement that happened where people moved into these corporate plantation areas and took them back during that moment they went and took the rest of the land um but in the end you know it seems like pretty revolutionary if not revolutionary emancipatory or like to continue using this idea of dual power that's so well known with the zapatistas like they created a place of autonomy within the state where they have their now kind of their own form of smallholder economy. They've regrown the forests there um, as food forests or agroecologies or agroforests where they're planting things like many, many different fruit crops, um, including avocado that is kind of one of their best commercial crops. Um, they're planting bananas, they're pa- planting cloves, they're planting cinnamon trees, all these things kind of mixed together in what looks like kind of a wild rainforest, um, but is actually, you know, this remarkable form of forest farming that has existed across Southeast Asia and other, other places in the tropics across the world in different forms for many thousands of years, but this is like a brand new one. And it takes, you know, some modern forms in, in the, in the, the actual commodity crops that, that were chosen. And to me, I think it really contributes to like, yeah, maybe not revolutionary, but certainly a, emancipatory um, change and like fundamental change. Would you and say it, insurrectionary? It, it, yeah, uh, emancipatory or insurrectionary is another good word. Um, although, you know, insurrection for me is like a little bit more like really challenging the state and maybe more a little more yeah, violent. Yeah. You know, this this group was completely dedicated to pacifism, to nonviolence. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and I think that's one of the ways they survived because they never really enraged the state enough and because they were a very mainstream cultural 
part of the archipelago like these people are exactly the people that you know the politicians of indonesia claim to represent and claim to work for so they were never really subjected these activists were never really subjected to the worst of the state um in ways that like i've been to a similar occupation not far from Casiavera that was carried out by a more marginalized indigenous group and there the repression was total and complete i mean there were paramilitary armed criminals these people's houses were burned down they were all arrested so mm. certainly these type of um, forms of direct action can be really risky and are often repressed and Casiavera for me is unique um, and it's interesting because it's unique in their kind of solidity and the way that they were not only able to occupy the land but get to the point where they're starting to now have like 20 years of experience in using the land and that to me is like the real contribution of learning that happens there it's like you know not only do we need to learn how to reclaim places from capitalism from the state we need to learn how to make them productive again for the people that live there and for ourselves um in forms of like mutual aid and solidarity so in Casiveri you see like this remarkable growth of cooperatives and collective work groups um you know these are people that exist within capitalism they're buying and selling things they're making money but a lot of what they're doing is pretty different um you know and i think alternative economies ideas of alternative futures that people talk about can learn a lot from from what what what's happening in Casiveri um and you know i'm sure that it's a place that's going to keep changing and evolving like you see over the last 20 years that one of the reasons that their occupation survived is that they they are open to experimenting with how to use the land and they changed um like private land rights and collective land rights they've kind of been experimenting with different kind of interesting hybrid forms of how you define ownership of the land how you use it um who gets to use it they spent a lot of time on that stuff and it uh, these are all really complicated questions like who deserves to be able to use the land um just kind of like uh the conversation in the US around reparations for descendants of enslaved people here in the US like how do you begin to determine who should receive reparations um you know the equivalent in in Casiavera was how do you begin to de determine who should use the land. I mean there's far more people in Indonesia that need land and want land they can get it. So yeah, working through some of these things, creating forms of self-governance and like that forms of of organization that support sovereignty of peoples but are also at the same time like effective arbiters of these type of disputes. You know, these are all like the things that Casiavera had to kind of think through and continues to think through. So for me, yeah, I mean, maybe to wrap up, it really our conversation today like Casiveras reclaimers, they bring together so many things that movements need to be thinking through today. And, you know, if we're really taking like efforts with from the academy to society of decolonization seriously, well then we need to think about like the land back movement seriously, you know, the movement to return land and resources to the original and like first owners before settler colonialism which means if we're going to take that seriously we need to figure out well how do you do that um 
who are the people that deserve reparations for that type of um, transformation of society. And then what, what are we going to do with the land? Um, like in California, once we take it back from giant settler colonists, white landowners and corporations, um, you know, who's going to get the land and how are we going to use it? You know, these are things that I think we can really learn from, from the reclaiming movement in Indonesia, which, you know, Casiveri is just one of many, many places where, where this is going on. So yeah, for me, it's, it's hopeful. And I think for, for our work to be meaningful, it needs to bring a bit of hope and it needs to bring like a bit of inspiration. And certainly every day when I get to work with people that are involved in these struggles, I'm inspired and like, hopefully it'll inspire everyone out there too. Um, to reach out and to learn about people that exist like this, because I think it's easy for us to forget that these type of direct action movements are unfolding like every day somewhere in the world. Um, And all of us are related to these struggles through our patterns of like consumption and participate participation in, in these capitalist processes. And and in addition to the sort of of talking about the local struggles, the indigenous people have, have to go through, I'd also like to know your opinion on in the general concept that throughout history we've had, you know, major political changes such as the the Republican struggle against uh, the aristocratic system. And then following that, maybe very broadly speaking, um, socialist struggles against the, the capitalist model throughout Europe and like the, the impact this has and the sort of snowball effect this has on an interna- international level. Would you say um, occupations of the the nature you've been describing like you know deep decolonial anti-colonial um struggles or more sort of more anarchist uh political structures like the Aaron volcano peasant union would you say um this sort of has international presence or if not would do you think if it, it could in the near future you know if, mm. it, if it if the if this sort of struggle or political systems propagate enough that it could have that a similar snowball effect yeah, I wish I had that, you know, snow globe I could shake and look in and yeah. kind of see. But, you know, I think it, it feels like what we learn, like from Casiavera and studying blockades is is that, you know, they can kind of create these liminal spaces, right? Like these spaces that kind of let the cracks of state power be seen. And so they're really effective in like undermining state and corporate institutional structures even if they invite repression, they can make space like for this potential, this revolutionary potential. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, Edward Said, a, a famous scholar um, and, and critic of like the mm-hmm. North and imperialism said that, you know, what we need is like this endless search for alternatives. Um, we need to just continue doing everything we can to do things differently. Um and like, I think that that certainly resonates with me um, just as a person in the world we live in, that we need we need to encourage people as much as we can, um, you know, to do things differently, to be weird, to be alternative, to not accept um, like what the mainstream says is the only way to live. Um, but also like we really need to remember that the blockade especially and the occupation these kind of nonviolent movements um they they only work when 
the, these reactionaries in the state, these people are holding a lot of the power and basically all the weapons. Like they only work when these people are willing to, to use restraint. Um, you know, and like the moment, like the state or corporations or other like militarized forces, like in the U S we have like the white nationalists, like the moment that they start sh showing that they're willing to use armed force against these type of nonviolent protesters. Like we have to reconceptualize immediately um, the utility of these forms of activism. So like, we can't just, just be too Pollyanna-ish about like these forms of nonviolent direct action. Like they are really effective as long as everyone keeps the guns at home, you know, mm -hmm. and that we, feel confident in that we can do activism and we can sit in the street without just becoming, you know, subject to like the intense violence of the state. Um, so yeah, for me, it's really about keeping an eye on um, how, yeah, these reactionary armed forces are treating activists and continuing to push as much as you can. And also being open to new, new forms um, of activism and, online hacking and what's going on on TikTok and like the Y pop generation organizing to disrupt, you know, really like terrifying white right policies. Like, you know, all that stuff, I think you just yeah. have to really embrace and you have to just kind of, you know, if, if what Saeed said is about, you know, that endless search for alternatives, like all that stuff, then we just have to support, like, we just have to say, great, you know, and keep doing it. And, and yeah. hopefully, you know, we'll, we, one day we'll, we'll get to where we want to be. Yeah. Yeah. Some, uh, beautiful words to, to close on. I think, thank you yeah. for that. And yeah, I think this is a, a really good episode on, on just resistance protest and the mm. possibilities of, of life. And obviously big shout out to stop cop city in Atlanta and the French fighting the 49-3 law and the, the UK with the big the big one coming up, although I hope they keep the Hopefully big the one. first big one, the first one. Yeah. That's what we should be doing. <laughs> They're gonna go get some tea after the big one. Uh tea and yeah, scones. Classic, classic. But yeah, thank you so much, David, for, for coming on the show. Um do you want to maybe just quickly tell people where they can find you, uh where they can read your work and, and interact with you? Yeah, I'm at uh davidegilbert.com and yeah, be in touch and let's just keep building together. Keep sharing. Thank you, guys. Yeah. You've also got Twitter at David underscore E underscore Gilbert, right? And mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah, all, the, all that's up on the website. And and yeah, I can't wait to uh, see where the show goes from here. Yeah, yeah. I mean, hey, if, uh, if you're interested, you know, we've been thinking of doing, and this is something that, you know, listeners, I would love for uh, input and feedback on this, but we've been wanting to do, you know, more creative things because you know we're we're reaching to the 60 episodes right now mm. 60 conversations we've had um 60 and years yeah <laughs> 60 years <laughs> yeah 60 conversations and, and you know they've been a lot of fun like i uh, you know i don't want to get into it too much right now I, i'm sure we can do this uh, on our own with jamie but we don't have to to bore david with this but we we have been wanting to like do some more different things than the past 60 episodes and kind of try different things out now there was the the you know the real ones we'll remember the uh 
the Flemish far right history uh, series that the mm. myself and Timmy worked on, and that was really interesting to kind of understand the history of um, Flanders um, Nazi uh, Nazi politics and how they translate into today, how they how today's politicians in Flanders are quite directly some of them uh, related and descended from real Nazi uh, politicians mm. in Flanders. Um, and so things like this, we've been wanting to work on a bit. We have a, a series coming up on Tunisia, on the ongoing yeah. stuff right now, the crises in, in Tunisia, uh, the racial war, basically, that's happening right now uh, with four different people and then a panel episode. And so, yeah, so, you know, send us your input. We'd love to do more creative kind of episodes. And uh, David, if you are up for coming back for one of these, we could do like a sort of panel discussion or something yeah. with some other academics. Uh, it'd be super cool. Maybe an episode especially on Cop City. I don't know. Sounds great. And yeah, maybe we should uh, tape it from Cop City next time. Really <laughs> that would be great. Yeah, <laughs> let's get let's get let's get a, a sponsor. <laughs> I'm sure somebody out there has the money to sponsor our flights to to Atlanta and, and we got this. <laughs> All right, David, thank you so much. Thank you. All right, David. have a great one.